good to have you here today on a uh, rainy day, whether you're in the room here or with us at our Skagit campus with Pastor Scott and the gang down there. Glad you joined us. And for those of you in Skagit, I'll be joining you this evening for Inside Cornwall for those who are part of that. And those of you who are worshiping with us online, so glad that you're with us no matter where you're joining from. If you're by yourself or with a family group or a friend or a, a, a dorm room, whatever, it's just good to have you uh, with us today. Before we get into uh, today's sermon, I, there's something I want to point out that I think is very significant. In 1987, I moved to Whatcom County to be the youth pastor at the Cornwall Park Church of God. That's what it was called in those days, a small uh, gathering of, of faithful saints, and there was a smaller group of, of students, and I was uh, brought in to build a student ministry. And when I came, there was a handful of kids, but I was also, um, I inherited a, a youth worker, uh, one, one youth worker volunteer, and he taught our, our junior high Sunday school class. His name was Ray Backman. And over the years, he and his wife Marge have been faithful, faithful servants of God, faithful to each other, faithful to the church. They've served in many different capacities. And this week, on Wednesday, they will celebrate their 70th wedding anniversary. Yeah. And, uh, and they watch every week online. In fact, I think they're watching uh, right now in this service. So Ray and Marge, thank you for your incredible example. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your, just for your lives. You're such an inspiration to all of us. And we celebrate with you this 70 years. It's a, it's a great goal for some of you. <laughs> you won't live that long, but it's a great goal for you anyway. So, hey, we've been in this series on the parables talking about these stories that Jesus would tell and they're just everyday common stories people could relate to, stuff that they dealt with. And within these just ordinary, simple stories, there was woven in some deep and profound life-changing truths. And what's amazing is that now 2,000 years later, while maybe some of the details of the story aren't as familiar to us in our everyday life, the profound truths still impact us. And there's some of the stories that really do kind of relate to us. In fact, a little, little bit of a kind of just a show of hands here, uh, whether you're here or, or worshiping with us online. Um, if you ever had parents that uh, requested or required you to do chores around the house or the farm or the family business, ever had that, okay, and, and maybe you followed through, maybe you didn't, but there was that. If you have ever been a parent or are a parent, um, have had two or more children, just go ahead and raise your hand, all right? So a lot of parents. If you had any siblings, brothers or sisters, raise a hand. And, and specifically, if you had a brother, raise your hand, okay. So see, if you raised your hand to any of those, you'll be able to identify with at least part of this story that we're gonna look at today that Jesus told. For me, I could raise my hand on all four of those. My, my parents had chores for us to do every day when we came home from school. Mom had a little list magnet on the, uh, on the refrigerator. We had to do our chores before we could watch Gilligan's Island or go out and play. I'm a parent of two, have two daughters. I have siblings, brothers and sisters, and I specifically have a brother. My sister's important, but today I wanna, for a moment, focus on my brother. My brother and I were born 20 months apart, really close, and um, in fact, I have a picture from around 1968, 1969 of my brother and I. Um, uh, yes, um, I'm the one on the right, and, uh, and, and, and you parents know that when it comes to children, and there's been this argument for, how, I don't know, who knows how long, nature versus nurture, and the answer is really yes, because you can have children, multiple children, two different children, with the same biological parents, raised in the same homes, eating the same food, sleeping even in the same bunk beds, or whatever, and yet there's, there's similarities with those, but even in the exact same environments, 
These two kids can have different personalities, different temperaments, different dispositions. They have different interests, different intensity, different abilities, different aptitudes, uh, all of these things. And there's, there can be stark differences. Thus is the case with my brother and I. 20 months apart, same parents, same household, same everything, very similar in a lot of ways. But there is a stark difference between my brother and I, especially in the area of mental acuity. <laughs> he is brilliant. He is logical. He is strategic thinking. Uh, growing up, he always did well in school. In fact, this was probably a picture of our first day of school. And I was going into the first grade, and he was, this was his senior year. I mean, he's just well advanced. Uh, in, in fact, that book that he's holding is probably pre-calculus, and what he's got in his left hand is a little self-contained energy unit made out of tinker toys and silly putty. I mean, he's just a brilliant guy. Even to this day, he will tell you, his memory, he has a filing system in his brain. He says, it's easy. It's just like a filing cabinet. You go to the file, you pull out the file, and then you like, are you kidding me? Mine looks like a compost pile. I mean, it's just amazing. And, and to want to be like my brother. Now, the story we're going to look at today is really about two brothers. And there's some things that are similar, and there's some things that are different with these two brothers. And if you've had parents that ask you to do chores, if you've been a parent of two or more, if you have siblings, especially a brother, you will identify with this story. We're going to look at a story found in Matthew chapter 21. And, uh, and Jesus starts this story, and he, he says this, What do you think... There was a man who had two sons. All right, so here's a story of a man named Brady. He's busy with two uh, very young boys. All right, so he's got these boys here, and there's two. Now, some of you right now are saying, oh, I know this story. The guy ends up in the pig trough, and then they kill the fatted calf. And the other. No, that's not this story. A lot of similarities between this story and the prodigal son with the elder brother and the younger brother, but it's a different one. It's a different story that Jesus tells that kind of has the same meaning. And what's interesting is while there are these two brothers, if you've studied Jesus' parable, you know often there are two characters, two parts of it. There was a time when Jesus told a parable to teach about prayer, and he has these two individuals, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Two weeks ago, Pastor Kip preached about the rich man and Lazarus. There were two of them. Last week, he preached about the wheat and the weeds, which, by the way, did Pastor Kip, Kip just bring it the last two weeks or what? I mean, yeah, that was oh, amazing. And you see this over and over again. There's two builders, two different foundations, two sets of bridesmaids. Because very often what Jesus does in the parables is that the parables, they would, they would, they would compare or contrast. Now, let me just kind of set some of you straight who've gotten this wrong for years. You compare to, you contrast with. Can we get that straight for once? And usually when you compare two, you're, you're generally looking at similarities, and generally when you contrast with, you're looking at differences. You compare two, and you contrast with. And we're gonna see that in the story today. There are some similarities, and there are some differences in this. Now today, uh, as we look at this story, as has been the case in some of the others, it's a part of a parable pair. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells back-to-back -back parables, and they go together. We're only going to have time to look at one of them. And if you continue reading into chapter 22, he actually, in the same setting, it appears, adds on a third parable. And what's unique about this parable, and when Jesus tells us, is that usually when he tells parables, he tells them to the crowds. We've seen this, how there would be thousands of people. And he would tell the story to all these people so that they could understand it. 
This one's unique because he's not talking to the crowds. I think the crowds hear it. I think it applies to them indirectly, but he's speaking directly to the, the, the chief priests, the, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, the elders of the people. Now, again, I think the crowds are there. We'll see this when I set up the context and the setting of this. I think there may have been hundreds or even thousands of people hearing this. But he's focused on and telling this story specifically to these religious leaders. In fact, at the end of the second parable, which we won't look at the second one today, but at the end of the second parable, we read this in uh, verse uh, 45. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And you might say, and they're probably going, cool, we made it into the sermon. Like the Son of God's talking about us. It was not so cool. Yes, he was talking about them, but it wasn't like, this is great, you get into the sermon today. Now, as we look at this, uh, they're really, the, the parable itself is, is really quite short. It's, it's three verses long, and there, there's two follow-up verses that Jesus uh, brings at the end of this story. But before we get there, and, and we will get there, I want to give you a little bit of, of, of context, setting, a little bit of the backstory, because I think it will help us understand this maybe on a deeper level or some nuances that we would miss otherwise. Um, I hope, I hope I don't lose you in this. For some of you say, just get to the parable, and we will. Get, give me about 10 minutes. If you want to take a little nap, great, we'll wake you up. I promise when we get to the parable, I'll say, okay, now we're getting to the parable. But for the rest of you who want the backstory in the setting, here's the deal. Jesus tells this story in the last week of his life. This is right before the crucifixion. It's probably the Monday or Tuesday. Thursday night, he's going to be in the upper room with his disciples, do the Lord's Supper, wash their feet, go off to the, the uh, Mount of Olives. He'll be arrested. Friday, he'll be crucified. Uh, Saturday, he'll preach to those in prison, which Pastor Kip uh, did an incredible job talking about that briefly a few weeks ago. And then on Sunday, will be the resurrection. But these, these events, this event happens a few days earlier. He has just come into Jerusalem on the Sunday before He's come in off of the Mount of Olives, and people are putting down their palm branches. This is Palm Sunday. Palm branches and cloaks and all that. And he comes riding in on a, on a, on a foal, this, this little colt, this little donkey. And he comes in, and people are saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, the Lord saves. You know, save us, Lord, all this stuff. And when he gets into town, he goes into Jerusalem. And he goes into the temple. And he sees something that is, he's probably seen his whole life, but it's just like, it, it gets to that point where it's like, this cannot continue on. He sees how the, the place of worship has become this place of commerce and actually the place of cheating people and stealing from them, the, the money changers and the animals that are being sold. And Jesus just opens up a can of righteousness, okay? And he throws over the tables, throws out the money changers, scatters the animals, and it is noticed. I mean, it's not like this was a subtle thing. And business tanked that day. And everybody was talking about it. And some were outraged and some were confused and some were ecstatic at what happens. But it wasn't just that he cleansed the temple and threw them out. Something else happens. In verse 14 we read this. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Now I want you to know the immense amount of self-control I am using right now because there's this really cool rabbit trail in 2 Samuel chapter 5 about David and the Jebusites and the blind and the lame that I'm not going there. <laughs> so he's healing the blind and the lame in the temple. And again, people are seeing all this. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, 
Hosanna to the son of David. They were ecstatic. They were pumped. They were rejoicing. I mean, look at the wonderful things he's doing and the children proclaiming this prophecy. This is like the Messiah. This is wonderful. They were, it says, they were indignant. Indignant. In fact, it follows on if you're reading along. And they said, Jesus, don't you hear what these kids are saying? And Jesus says, yeah, I do. And he even throws Psalm 8 back at them. He quotes some scripture. He says, out of the mouths of children and infants, God has ordained praise, which infuriated them even more. Well, he leaves the temple and he goes back over the Mount of Olives to a place called Bethany. That's where his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived, probably stayed with them overnight. He comes back into Jerusalem the next day. This is Monday or Tuesday, depending on, on, on uh, your timeline on this. Monday or Tuesday before the, the crucifixion. He comes back to Jerusalem and he comes back to the temple. And this is what we read, verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. Now we've talked about this. When, when you talk about the temple courts, it's not just the building, the temple. The, the, the Temple Mount was 37 acres. What Herod the Great had done, chopped off the top of a mountain, moved it over, made this big 37-acre plateau, this big building slab. And along the east side is, is Solomon's portico or the porch or the colonnades where rabbis would come with their disciples and they would teach before they would go into the temple. And Jesus is there teaching. Remember, it's, Palm, uh, it's just after Palm Sunday. It's the, the week of the Passover. All kinds of people are, are coming to Jerusalem. There's more people in Jerusalem than just about any time of the year. Jesus is healing people. There's been a parade. They've heard about him just throwing all these people out of the temple. You don't think there's more than just 12 or 15 people there. I think there's hundreds of people there, maybe thousands of people there. And Jesus is talking to them, telling them about the kingdom of God, teaching them a parable, telling a story. And in the midst of it, here comes the Pharisees, the elders of the people, the teachers of the law. And they don't just suddenly come in, trickling in and sitting along the back. They come in as an entourage. And they love to be noticed and they love to be seen and people are probably saying, here they come, and there's probably just this sense of, row, row. here comes the, the, the authority, here comes the heat. And we don't know if they interrupt Jesus or they wait till he's done. But they ask him a question. And remember, they're indignant about what's been going on these last couple of days. Uh, it says this, the question, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority, these things, this parade that you're a part of that you didn't shut down, these children, what they're saying and you let them, the, the healing of the, the blind and lame in the temple, the, the throwing out the money changers, these things, who do you think you are? What kind of authority do you have? Where did you get this authority? And the real question is, why do you think you can get away with this? It's a question of his authority. And I love this, they want kind of a Q&A. They're throwing this out there, like you shouldn't be doing this, you don't have the authority to do this. We're the ones with the authority around here. We're the Pharisees, we're the teachers of the law, we're the elders of the people. Who are you? Some rabbi from Galilee? And they want an answer. Jesus says, we're not doing Q&A today. We're doing Q&Q. &Q. He says, okay. He follows up with his own question. Jesus replied, verse 24, I will ask you, I'll also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you 
by what authority I'm doing these things. You ask me a question, I ask you a question. You answer my question, I'll answer your question. It's all good. Here's my question for you. John's baptism. Now, this isn't Peter, James, and John, John, John the disciple, John. This is John the Baptist, John. And when it says John's baptism, it's not just the act of putting people underwater. John's baptism was his ministry, his message, the things he said, the things that he did, the, 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 the prophet that he was, his ministry. John's baptism, he asked them this, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? So he asked a similar question. Let's talk about authority. John, you all know John, John the Baptist. What was his authority? Was his ministry from heaven or was it from men? Now, this is where we need to go back to another backstory. This is where I hope I don't lose you. Because we're going to go three years earlier. Because John had been there. John the Baptist had come. There hadn't been a prophet for 400 years. John comes out of the wilderness and he looks like, wow. And his message is unbelievable. His fiery message. And it's like the first time there's been a prophet. And John's message was basically a message about repentance and righteousness. Repentance, this idea of, of turning, of changing, of, of changing your mind, of changing your thinking, changing your perspective, and righteousness of, of a right wise, a right way of living by the changing of your thoughts and the way it lives out in your life. That was his message. So, uh, real quick, in Matthew chapter 3, it says this, um, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, word began to spread about this, this guy. It's like the prophet. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's Elijah. There's all this question. But he's got this message. And people went. And it says they came from Jerusalem. And we're not talking about a 15-minute little uh, donkey ride. I mean, it was a long, from where Jerusalem was to where John was baptizing at the Jordan, way south, down by the Dead Sea. It was a pretty serious trek to get down there. But not just from Jerusalem, but from all Judea, it says, and the whole region of the Jordan, the whole Jordan Valley, people are going. And word begins to circulate. Everyone seems to be going to see this John the Baptist. And the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're hearing about this too. Who is this John the Baptist? Why are people going to see him? What are they hearing? What is he saying? What's going on? So they go to check it out. Verse 7 out of Matthew 3. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. That's not a term of endearment. That's code for, you snakes, you snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? So you've gotta understand, there's a, there's a tension between John the Baptist and the religious leaders three years earlier. Now, at this point, he's been beheaded. That's a whole other story. But they don't have fond memories of John the Baptist. He's not their hero. And Jesus is asking them about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist made it really clear that he was not the Messiah. He was not the light. You read this in John chapter 1. He was not the light. He came to point the way. He would talk about Isaiah as he prepares the way for the Lord. And he was very clear about that. And then there was this moment when he sees his relative that he probably knew from childhood, but he sees him in a new light. Find this in John chapter, I, I promise we're going to get to the parable. <laughs> you still with me? I haven't lost you? Keep sleeping. It's wonderful. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So John gives his endorsement, his validation of Jesus and his ministry, and even claims for him to be the one who would take away the sins of the world, the Messiah. This is the one that they had been anticipating, waiting for, longing for. The, the promised one is here, and John says Jesus is this one. Back to the story. Jesus said, John the Baptist, John's baptism. Was that from God or was that from man? And then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they kind of go into one of those family feud moments, you know, where they all circle around and say, what should our answer be? So they begin to talk amongst himself. And they begin to realize, we're kind of backed into a corner. If we say that John the Baptist came from heaven, that he was speaking for God, Jesus is gonna say, well then why didn't you believe him? That answers your question of where my authority comes from. And we can't say that. But if we say, no, John the Baptist was just another man, these people are gonna revolt because he was their prophet. They love John the Baptist. They, they, they'll turn against us. So these intelligent, brilliant teachers of the law, these Pharisees, these, these ones who, are, who are, are the religious leaders who know more than anyone else, they say what any intelligent person would say. They answer Jesus, we don't know. What do you mean you don't know? That's your job. Your job is to know if there's a false prophet, your job is to know that they're false and to, and to point that out. And this is John the Baptist. You've had three years to figure this one out. How do you mean you don't know? How can you not know? And Jesus says, okay. And he doesn't impress one. He just says, okay. He said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. You don't answer my question? I'm not going to answer yours. Let me just review this, and then we'll get to the parable. So start waking up your neighbor. It's the week before Jesus is going to be crucified. Passover week. Thousands of people pouring into Jerusalem. There's been stuff that, is, that has caused a lot of talk, a lot of excitement, a lot of murmuring in the town. There's been this parade, this unusual parade with this man, Jesus. He's done this thing in the temple that no one would ever think of doing, and he gets away with it. And he's healing people. And then he has this question and question time and he backs the teachers of the law into the corner and it's pretty intense and now they're all sitting there and they're all kind of looking at each other like, what's gonna happen now? I think there's hundreds, maybe thousands of people observing this. And Jesus tells a story. Now, the parable. Starting at verse 28. What do you think? He's engaging them. I want you to think, he says. You know, you didn't do so well in the first question, but I've got another question for you. So I want you to think about this. I'm going to ask you a question at the end of this. It's going to be a little bit of a quiz. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. I've already determined that one. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of parents who've ever had a child that you've asked them to do something and they, we're just not going to even talk about that. <laughs> Would never happen. Not in your wonderful families. Now, what you under, need to understand in their context, in an honor society, where the, the reputation and the honor of the family was everything, this would have been one of the most shocking stories they could have heard. In an honor society, in a family, there are two very, very important, the hierarchs, hierarchy of the whole family unit is the patriarch, the father, and the firstborn son. Those would be the two most important people, and this kind of implies this is who it is in the story. There's the father and the first, kind of the firstborn son. The father, you would never disobey the father. You would never dishonor the father. You would never go against him, and you, you would never disgrace him this way. 
that a son would say that and, and to say, no, I'm not going to go to the field. The field's going to be his, the vineyard's going to be his eventually someday anyway. And what he says, people are like, no, that would never happen. This is a very, very bad son. This is a disgraceful son. In fact, there's some pretty harsh statements in the Old Testament about what to do with a guy like this. We will not go there. But, but later, he changed his mind and he went. You know what that is? Repentance and right living. He changed his thinking. He repented. I thought this way, I'm thinking differently. I've done this, and now I'm going to do the right thing. He does this kind of turnabout, that there's this repentance that happens, and there's this, this change of his life. Well, Jesus goes on with this story. He says, then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. This is the compliant child. This is the obedient child. This is the reason you have more children. If they're all this easy, why wouldn't we have 12? If they're all like this, who wouldn't want more of these? This is that child that just is respectful. I will, sir. Not even dad, sir. I honor you, I hear you, I respect you. I'm saying all the right things, I've got all the right answers. So much promise in this son. But, he did not go. Such a disappointment. Did not follow through. Said all the right things. Knew all the right answers. Knew how to play the game. But didn't do it. Now with these two brothers, there's some similarities. Same dad. Same family. Same vineyard. Same request. And one other similarity is that both of them, in their lives, both of them were unsatisfactory. I mean, neither one of them painted an exemplary picture of what you would want a child to do. The first one was hard-hearted, was disrespectful, was disobedient, what was disgraceful, really, would shame the family. Even though that story would end well, it would, just, it would cause so much pain and so much scarring and so much embarrassment. And the second one says all the right things, plays the game well, looks good on the outside, but doesn't follow through. Reminds me of when Jesus would quote Isaiah. We see this in Matthew 15. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are but rules taught by men. So Jesus tells this story of these two brothers, these two sons. And he started off, he says, so what do you think? And then he comes back around and he, he finishes his question. So what do you think? Verse 31, which of the two did what the father wanted? The first, they answered. They, they, they've got an answer to this question now. They, they can get this one. The first. And I wonder, I just wonder if Jesus is like, okay, and just lets it sink in. Think about the story. Think about what you just answered. So what you're saying is, if someone does something just deplorable, disgraceful, that they could actually repent and actually be kind of the hero. And likewise, 
there could be someone who seems to know and say and appear to do all the right things, but actually is not a very good son. And I wonder if he just lets it sink in. I love this line. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Okay, we gotta stop there. He, he starts off saying, what do you think? He doesn't follow up saying, well, let me tell you what I think. He says, I tell you the truth. Whoa, 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 where did this whole encounter start? They're asking about his authority. You can't make a statement like, I tell you the truth without having some authority. That is an authoritative statement. And Jesus is kind of saying, listen, you want to know my authority? I am the truth. And I'll tell you the truth. And at this point, he leaves the fictitious story behind. He leaves the parable behind. And now he brings it into real life. And this is one of those times, it doesn't happen often in the parables, where he's engaging with the person or the people that he's telling this story. He's asking them to think about it, to give them an answer. And then he just applies it directly. And what he says when he says, I tell you the truth, he is going to drop a truth bomb that they could not have ever thought of in their wildest imagination. They are blindsided, and it will, if they, were, if they were upset before, this will cause them to be livid, infuriated. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Remember, there's hundreds, maybe thousands there. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. I'm wondering if there are tax collectors and prostitutes in the crowd saying, we are? <laughs> and the religious leaders are saying, they are? And then they think about it and they're like, well, well wait a second, Jesus, rabbi, teacher, do you not know the Ten Commandments? Do you not know Commandments 7 and 8? You know, like, you shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal do you know that tax collectors, they steal for a living? They're like professional stealers, and you're saying, not Pittsburgh, they're worse than that. They are like getting into the kingdom first. Are you kidding me? And, and prostitutes says, thou shalt not commit adultery. They commit adultery for a living. They're professional adulterers, and you're saying they're getting the kingdom of heaven before us. Jesus, do you not know about the Ten Commandments? Do you not know what you're saying? And there's probably confusion and anger and all of this that's going on in the midst of all that. And I think what Jesus is pointing out, something that, that uh, Pastor Kip and I heard David Kinnaman say a few weeks ago, is that God is just as concerned with self-righteousness as he is with unrighteousness. Their unrighteous acts, horrible, sinful, yes. The self-righteous attitudes, just as horrible and sinful. Self-righteousness and unrighteousness, both are sins against God and our fellow man. Self-righteousness and unrighteousness, both separate us from God and our fellow man. Self-righteousness and unrighteousness, both must be repented of. Both of those things will keep us out of the kingdom of heaven, whether it's an attitude or an action. And Jesus circles back around, and this is why I gave you the whole backdrop with John. Verse 32, for John came to you to show you the way. Ooh, wait, 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 I've heard that phrase before. John came to show you the way. Jesus said, I am the way. 
John said the son of the, the, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. John came to show you the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. And I don't think Jesus is just speaking metaphorically to make a point here. Think about his ministry and think about who may have been in that crowd that day. There was a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, most likely a prostitute, and Jesus offers her the kingdom of God, does not condemn her, tells her to go and sin no more, to repent and to live a right wise life. I wonder if she was there saying, that was me. The woman at the well who'd lived this adulterous lifestyle, she'd been married five times, living with a guy, and yet Jesus invites her into the kingdom, and their whole village comes to Jesus because of her. Zacchaeus, what a wee little guy, and he's a chief tax collector. But Jesus calls him down and says, I must go to your house, and today, you know, there's salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus was probably there. I was a tax collector. I'm in the kingdom. Who's writing all this? Matthew, what was his occupation? He was a tax collector. Jesus said, follow me. He's a part of the kingdom. Jesus is always opening up the kingdom for anyone who wants to be a part of it. And it doesn't matter if you have an unrighteous lifestyle or self-righteous mindset. You need to repent and have a life that is right-wise. I want to push pause on the story here and tell you another story, not a parable. It's something that I experienced about five weeks ago. And I think it helps illustrate this point. It does for me. And I want to say before I say anything else that in telling this story, I'm not in any way judging or condemning anybody, particularly one of the, uh, one of the people in the story. Not at all. Um, and I'm not making light of the situation of that individual at all. It's probability based on observation on my part. And it may be wrong, and it may be a stereotype. So let me just say that right up front. Five weeks ago, it was a Sunday, uh, Sunday, five weeks ago today, and uh, after a weekend services, uh, preaching you know, throughout the weekend, sometimes I'm tired, and that day I was tired and I was a little bit irritable. I mean, things, you know, hawks weren't doing well, probably lost again that day. Daylight hours are getting shorter, it's rainy, it's getting into the fall, just kind of in a, not a great mood. Tired and upset and all that, okay. Dark and rainy day and hawks losing, okay, all that. That Sunday afternoon, my wife said, hey, can we go get some more fall decorations for the house? I didn't want to go get more fall decorations for the house. I don't need leaves and acorns and pumpkins. I don't need that. So, but I said, oh, okay. So grudgingly, I got in the car, and away we went on this dark, rainy night. And we went to Hobby Lobby on Sunday. <laughs> Hobby Lobby is closed on Sunday. This does not make matters any better for me. We drove in here on a cloudy, rainy, dark Sunday night. I'm tired, the hawk's lost, I'm not. I said, let's go to Michael's. We drove over to Michael's. Michael's closes at seven o'clock on Sunday night. It's approximately 7.05. <laughs> I'm not happy and I'm making it very known in this car that I'm not happy to be here. And so my wife says, well, you know what, forget it. Let's just go home. You don't really want to do this anyway, and I'll just do this on my own next week. And I said, no, 
Home Goods is open till eight. We're going to Home Goods. She said, no, 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 really, you don't want to be here. You're upset. Let's just go home. I said, we're going to Home Goods. We came in here. We're going to Home Goods. Sometimes you just need to be the leader of your household. We went to Home Goods and parked in the parking lot. We're walking across and it's rainy and it's dark. And we get all the way up to the door and I'm like, oh, I don't have a mask. Now, for those of you who are watching out of state, we're still required to wear a mask to go in stores and such. So I'm like, you go find your acorns. I got to go back and get my mask. As I'm walking back through the rain in the parking lot with a really sour attitude, I'm just telling you right now, some of you, this is the last week you'll go to this church because this is your pastor. <laughs> Had a really sour attitude. I could hear someone on a sidewalk, like a store or two down, singing kind of at the top of his lungs. And just a voice singing. And it's just in those covered sidewalks, kind of the corridor, you could just hear it. And it was a song that was familiar. I go back to the car, I get my mask, I'm walking through the rain. As this voice and this individual is coming up the sidewalk, I recognize the song. It's a song that I haven't heard or sung in probably 15 years or better. It was a staple in the evangelical church in the late 90s. It's a song from Hillsong by Darlene Check, Shout to the Lord. And I hear this song and this guy's singing. I'm like, he's actually on key and he's singing it really well. And, and I'm like, I haven't heard that song in forever. He gets all the way through the course. He starts into it again. I'm walking across. I know I've got a bad attitude. I'm dripping wet. I'm not happy about any of this. And I'm thinking, I need to sing that song. And as I get closer, he's getting closer. And our, 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 the trajectory of our, our paths of walking are going to cross. And I just start singing with him. He's into it the second time. You know, my shelter, my comfort, my shelter. Tower of refuge and strength. And I start singing it out loud. Uh, let every breath, all of my days, never cease to worship you. He hears that I'm singing. He's singing. We're singing together. Our paths are coming together. We get to the chorus. Shout to the Lord. We're standing. We're singing in the rain. He's singing. I'm singing. And it's real obvious to me. He's drenched. He's probably homeless. He's clutching a crushed 24-ounce ice house a can that who knows how many more he's had. And he's singing, and we're standing face to face like Donnie and Marie. And we're singing, shout to the Lord. And he gets this big smile on his face, and there's not one tooth in his mouth. And we sing, shout to the Lord. We're singing out here in the rain. We get to the end. Nothing compares to the promise I have. And he tags it. Nothing compares to the promise. I just follow his lead. The promise I have, 13. Nothing compares to the promise I have in you. And I've got my arms out. He's got his arms out. We're in the rain. We get done with that song. I embrace him and I say, I love you, brother. <laughs> and I walked, I walked into Home Goods, a changed man. <laughs> now I want to tell you something. We can contrast and compare these two guys in this story. See, I have a home and a car and a job and sobriety and teeth. <laughs> and I'm a pastor. And he doesn't. A lot of difference there. But the similarities he and I were both created in the image of our God. And we are both dearly loved by our Heavenly Father. And both of us 
have sinned miserably in such a way as to disqualify ourselves from a right standing with God. And both of us deserve nothing more than hell. You see, on the things that really matter and the things that are eternal, he and I are way more alike than we are different. And if either one of us stands a snowball's chance of getting into a right relationship with Jesus Christ and into heaven, it's only by the grace of God. Not by what I own, not by what I do, not by what I have, only by the grace of God. So here we are, about as opposite as could be, but as similar as there ever were, two men, righteous brothers singing in the rain. In 2 Corinthians, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not by what I do, what I have. So Isaiah would say, my righteousness is like filthy rags. The best I can come up with is stuff you would not even want to touch. So Paul would say, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is in faith in Christ, a righteousness from God, which is by faith. Jesus, at the end of another parable, would say this in Luke 15, 7, I tell you that in the same way there, is, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 other righteous persons who uh, do not need to repent. You know why he would say that? Because you can search as long as you want. You will never, ever find 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. There has always only ever been one righteous person who does not need to repent. Only one. Everyone else has sinned. Everyone else is unrighteous. And that one, that one became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. See, Repentance, whether it's for unrighteous acts or self-righteous attitudes, is desperately needed. And we think of repentance as such a negative thing. Repentance is beyond just an apology. It's beyond sorry. It's, it's to life. The repentance is this invitation to live free from, from the sin and the guilt and the shame, to be forgiven, to come to life and the life that God created you to live. It doesn't matter what you've done or, or what you thought. It requires this repentance to right living. And he invites that. One more. John says this to, to the Pharisees back in Matthew 3. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance. Change your thinking. Change your mind. Change. And the fruit is this right way, this righteousness, this right wise living. To live in humility, not pride. To live out of gratitude for his grace, not not groveling over our guilt. To, to live with this effort of righteous obedience, not trying to earn it through religious duty. To, to worship. To, to surrender. Not to do this obligatory duties and self-righteousness. And it's not just for behavioral modification. It's for total life transformation. As Zach Williams sings, every, little, every day to become a little more like Jesus and a little less like me. And I wonder, I wonder what it would look like if we would embrace a life of repentance 
to just come clean and say, Jesus, I need you and your grace. I need your righteousness in my life. And maybe we can start that today.